Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. And threw him out of the city. Only after spending seven years in exile at the Papal Palace in Rome did Bryce achieve sufficient composure and sanctity to return to Tours and rule as a more saintly bishop for the rest of his life. Thus it may have been with some trepidation that each chronicler recorded the feast day of St. Bryce in connection with their new prince's birth. After all, Edward II had been born on St. Mark's Day, and that was hardly any more propitious, being widely regarded as a day of doom. The author of The Life of Edward II ended his eulogy on the young prince's birth with the hope that he would combine in his persons the virtues that characterised in turn his forebears. May he follow the industry of King Henry II, the well-known valour of King Richard. May he reach the age of King Henry III, revive the wisdom of King Edward I, and remind us of the physical strength and comeliness of his father. The king's instinct was to shower those whom he loved with presents, and so he immediately ordered that the baby be raised to the front rank of the peerage. This was extraordinary. Edward II himself had been sixteen, almost seventeen years old, before he was created Earl of Chester. His father had been nearly fifteen. Now his son would bear that title. At the age of twelve days, Edward of Windsor was created an earl. No sooner had this been done than the king set about spending money on preparations for his first family Christmas, ordering almost £1,250 to be spent on cloth for his and the queen's retainers and those of the young heir. After Christmas, the baby was provided with his own household, to maintain him in his position as Earl of Chester. By the 26th of January 1313, aged just ten weeks, Edward was nominally in charge of dozens of greater and lesser servants. A large household required maintenance, so the king was able to indulge his demonstration of largesse further by granting his son a number of lucrative incomes. The counties of Flintshire and Cheshire were made over to him along with his title. At the age of eight months, he was granted the lordship of the Isle of Wight. At the age of four, he was granted a substantial income from the exchequer, amounting to the rent of the manor of Petworth and the lands of the young heir, Henry Percy. At the age of five, he was granted an additional 1,000 marks per year, 666 pounds, 13 shillings and 8 pence, out of the tin revenues of Cornwall. Edward was very well provided for. Not the richest earl in the kingdom, that was his father's embittered cousin, Thomas, Earl of Lancaster, but by no means the poorest. With all these grants came responsibilities. As the Earl of Chester, Edward of Windsor was responsible for the administration of justice in all his lands and across many manors held by others. It is, of course, very unlikely that as a baby he heard any of the king's writs addressed to him, but nevertheless he would have had impressed upon him from the earliest age the fact that he had duties towards others. Rents coming in from his manors in the north were collected by his chamberlain and paid out to his officers and into his own wardrobe or treasury. His officers were responsible for raising men from Cheshire for the king's service. When the king needed to raise men from North Wales for the suppression of the rebel Llewellyn Bren in the spring of 1316, it was the three-year-old Earl of Chester to whom the writ was directed. Similarly, arrangements to allow foodstuffs to be purchased and conveyed away from Chester, or to arrest outlaws travelling in the region, had to be made with his justicia. 
The king's reasons for making his son an earl at such a young age were various, and the propaganda element of the outrageousness of the appointment cannot be ignored. But the end result was an education. In later life, Edward III would not have been able to remember a time when he was not responsible for the administration of justice, the accrual of revenue from land, and decisions which changed people's lives. The king might have been the most powerful figure in Edward's life with regard to inheritance and status, but he was not the only important person. Edward's mother, Queen Isabella, Isabella the Fair, was every bit as royal as her husband, the only daughter of King Philip of France who doted on her. She was sixteen years of age at the time of the birth, twelve years younger than the king and renowned for her beauty and intelligence. She was also connected to most of the royal houses of Europe due to the geographical position of France and the status of her ancestors. Through her mother, Jeanne, who enjoyed the mouth-watering title of Countess Palatine of Champagne and Brie, as well as that of Queen of Navarre, she was connected to Iberian royalty. Through her grandmother, she was related to the Dukes of Brabant. Through her cousin, Jeanne, daughter of Charles, Count of Valois, she was related to William, Count of Hainault, Holland and Zealand, the Lord of Friesland and so on. She was enmeshed in a complex series of dynastic relationships even more extensive than those of her husband. Edward II's only living close relative in a European royal house was his nephew, the young Duke of Brabant. His mother, Eleanor of Castile, had died more than twenty years earlier, when he had been only six, and his Spanish cousins were not close. The difference lay in geographical position and the difficulties of directly exercising royal links. Despite two centuries of taking continental brides, England remained on the periphery of the continental dynastic network. France, respected as the greatest kingdom in Christendom, was at the very centre. Thus, for Edward of Windsor, his mother represented rich dynasties and royal links far beyond the shores of Britain. It was perhaps in recognition of this that Isabella's uncle, Louis d'Evreux, requested that Isabella call her firstborn son Louis, not Edward. Not surprisingly, the English nobles at the baptism refused. Dynastic links are easy to account for, but they are not as important for understanding a child's development as parental character. Although Edward II's personality has been reappraised many times in the last hundred years, Isabella's has generally been neglected. Most people still remember her as the She-Wolf of France, this name was originally the Duke of York's insult to Margaret of Anjou in Shakespeare's Henry VI Part Three, Act One, Scene Four, but it came to be applied to Isabella in the 18th century due to the widespread belief that she had been party to her husband's murder. Even though scholarship has moved on considerably, popular reputations of villainy never die. This is both a pity and a problem. Edward's mother was not a she-wolf, but a dutiful and highly religious woman, who, in later years, when she had been spurned by her husband and had fallen into the arms of a dominating lover, still felt she ought to return to her rightful spouse. When the king lay in prison, scorned by the nation and bereft of his throne, she still sent presents to him. Edward II's respect for her intelligence and negotiating skills may be seen in his approval of the treaty which she negotiated on his behalf in order to try to secure peace with France in 1325. Nor was this the only time that Edward placed great faith in her skills. She also took part in domestic peace negotiations in 1313, 1318 and 1321. She was a woman of conscience. When she found that two of her sisters-in-law were guilty of adultery with two French knights, she had no hesitation in reporting them to her father. It is not difficult to find instances of her clemency. Although she detested Hugh Dispenser the Younger with a passion, she pleaded for the life of Hugh's father, the Earl of Winchester, when he was facing execution. She was known to be moved by pity. In October 1312, while pregnant with Edward, she gave food and clothes to a young Scottish orphan she met. Later, she paid for him to be sent to London to be educated. She equalled even her husband's piety in her pilgrimages, her devotion to English shrines and her enthusiastic collecting of relics. She also collected books, especially chivalric tales, and had more than thirty volumes in her library when she died. Bookish and pious, it is not surprising that she had little aptitude for war. An attempt to lead an attack on Leeds Castle in 1321 ended in disaster and the deaths of nine members of her household. Similarly, she never played a leading role in political confrontation, except when at the side of her lover, Sir Roger Mortimer. 
but during the invasion of 1326, she acted as a brilliant and powerful figurehead. Her greatest failing was her ability to spend money, vast amounts of money, with apparently no qualms about the acquisitiveness demonstrated in obtaining such sums. From relatively restrained beginnings at the time of Edward's birth, although sixty men were employed to keep and repair her clothes, her spending in the years 1326 to 30 amounted to about a quarter of the royal purse. However, if her most notable characteristics were duty, piety, loyalty to those she loved, passion, clemency, trustworthiness, intelligence and conscience, and if her greatest sin was profligacy, she was about as far from the all-devouring she-wolf myth of the 18th century as a woman could possibly be. Of the other people who were important to the infant Edward, one must first mention his nurse, Margaret. She was from Daventry in Northamptonshire, and in 1312 was the wife of Stephen Chandler. To her, Edward remained devoted for the rest of her life. So attached to her did he become that she was still in his household, maintained on the payroll along with his clerks after he became king. Later, in his twenties, he made every effort to look after her when she encountered legal difficulties. This is not surprising, as she was the one person who had always been with him from birth to adolescence. It was in her care that he remained when, at the end of January 1313, his mother made preparations to return to London. Margaret, who would have been breastfeeding the two-month-old Edward in place of his mother, took the baby from Windsor to Bray on the 26th of January. The next day they arrived at Bisham in Berkshire, which was to be Edward's home for the next year. The building they lived in was almost certainly the manor house which had belonged to the Knights Templar until the dissolution of the order in 1312. His father visited him on the 13th of February and stayed for dinner, and again visited on the 4th of August, on which occasion he granted him the Isle of Wight. His mother visited for four days in early May, and the kindly Queen Margaret, his father's stepmother and his mother's aunt, visited in June. His nurse Margaret also took him to see his mother and father at court. The account for his household expenses at this time records that he was taken to spend 27 days with the royal family in the spring and early summer of 1313. Edward spent the first years of his life in his nurse's company, receiving gifts and occasional visits from his parents, surrounded by servants and household officials whose roles he would not have fully understood. In April 1314, he was moved from Bisham to Luggershall in East Wiltshire, an old castle in need of repair, as shown by the order to mend the shingle roofs of the prince's dwellings. It was expected that Edward would stay there for some time, and this still seems to have been the plan at the end of May, when the king's butler was ordered to provide an extra thirty tons of wine for the prince's household over and above that already delivered, suggesting a very large contingent of men-at-arms protecting the young boy. But in June, the king decided to locate his son and heir at Wallingford Castle, previously the chief residence of Piers Gaveston. Perhaps the king, knowing he would be riding north to face the Scots near Stirling in the battle which came to be known as Bannockburn, wished to make sure his son was secure in case of a disaster. By July, the prince and his nurse had taken up residence. It was fitting that he should have come to live in Gaveston's castle. The prince had become the king's symbol of independence, just as Gaveston had once been. Edward conferred gifts and titles on his son in the same way he had given them to Gaveston. The difference was that his son was royal, whereas Gaveston had been born a commoner, not even of baronial rank, and gifts to the heir of the throne were beyond criticism. The next group of people who might have influenced Edward in these early years, at least the next group whom we can identify, are the officers who administered his household. The most important of these would have been his steward, Sir Robert Morley, who served him before July 1314 until at least June 1320. In his official capacity, Morley would have controlled the men of the household in all their duties, overseeing his own staff and those in the specialist departments of the buttery, scullery, pantry, sorcery the hall, marshalsea and the prince's private chamber. He would, moreover, have been particularly conspicuous, standing with his staff of office in the hall at mealtimes while the servants took their places at the tables below the dais where the young Edward sat. Next in importance to the steward was the treasurer, or keeper of the wardrobe, who was responsible for Edward's income and expenses. From the beginning until 1316 at least, and possibly until 1318, this office was held by Hugh of Leominster, a royal clerk who had served as receiver and chamberlain in North Wales in the time of Edward's grandfather, Edward I, and had been in royal service ever since. 
he would have been able to tell the young prince about his grandfather's conquest of Wales. Perhaps there were other men in the household who could regale the boy with stories of his ancestors' achievements. We can only wonder what Edward might have heard from men such as Grimble de la Batude, a foreigner who had served both Edward I and Edward II before entering Edward's household. On the 15th of August 1316, Prince John, Edward's brother, was born at Eltham. Once again, the St Albans Chronicler recorded how happy the king was, but this time it is noticeable that there was nowhere near as much effusion of joy. There was no expensive income awarded to the man who brought him the news, there were no comparisons with Gaveston, there was no need. Although far from peaceful, with a serious rebellion in Wales due to the harsh climate of the previous two summers, a rebellion in Bristol and the Scots' invasion of Ireland, the king was not personally under pressure. His principal enemy, his cousin the Earl of Lancaster, had withdrawn to sulk in his vast estates in the north of the country, and for once King Edward had a relatively free hand. He wrote to the prior of his favourite order of friars, the Dominicans, on the 24th of August, requesting that they pray for the king, the queen, Edward of Windsor, and John of Eltham, especially on account of John. No doubt four-year-old Edward was summoned to Eltham to see his baby brother, his justiciar in Chester, Sir Hugh Audley the Elder, was ordered to pay the Queen the rents from the manor of Macclesfield to cover John's expenses. When their younger sister, Eleanor of Woodstock, was born on the 8th of June 1318, it was proposed that all three royal children should live together. By then, significant changes had taken place in Edward's household. Shortly before April 1318, the King appointed Sir Richard Damery to be Edward's guardian, or, to be precise, Keeper of the body of my lord Sir Edward, Earl of Chester, and surveyor of his household and his lands and all his business. Damery requested that since one of his roles was to inquire into the negligence of Edward's bailiffs at Chester, he needed legal assistance. He requested probably the most notable lawyer of the time, Geoffrey Le Scroop, or, if Geoffrey could not attend, then John Stonor, another famous royal legal adviser. Damery was given the services of both men. Damery also asked for, and got, the services of Nicholas Hugate to be Edward's treasurer and keeper of his wardrobe. Suddenly, a man had come along who had reorganised Edward's household and set about identifying and correcting the abuses which, it turned out, were being perpetrated across Edward's estates. Damery was more than just a bureaucratic reformer. He was the elder brother of Roger Damery, whom the king liked so much that in 1317 he gave him the hand in marriage of his own niece, Elizabeth, one of the three sisters and co-heiresses of the late Earl of Gloucester. This brought Roger Damery into the royal family, and at the same time enhanced Sir Richard's standing with the king. Sir Richard had begun his career in the household of the Earl of Hereford, the king's brother-in-law, in whose service he had worked assiduously. After leaving Hereford's service, he had entered royal employment, acting as Sheriff of Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire from 1308 to 1310, and as Constable of Oxford Castle from 1311. He also seems to have been associated with the Dispenser family. He may be characterised as a man of wide experience, an old soldier, probably in his forties, with a dependable track record of responsible command, and with very good connections with the Marcher Lords, such as the Earl of Hereford and the Royal Family. Under Damery's watchful eye, Edward would have had a wooden sword pressed into his hand with the intention that he should learn how to use it, and take his first steps along the long road to becoming a military leader. Edward's household arrangements never remained static for long. In late 1318, his two-year-old brother John and baby sister Eleanor came to live with him. The children remained together for nearly two years. But on the 5th of June 1320, Sir Richard Damery, Robert Morley and Nicholas Hugate were ordered to return High Peak to Queen Isabella for the sustenance of John and Eleanor. The implication is that they went to live with her. Edward, however, did not return to his mother but to his father, Extraordinarily, on the 5th of August 1320, although not yet eight years of age, the king summoned him, our dearest son, to attend Parliament. His political life had begun. On the face of it, we might wonder what his father expected of him at such a tender age. The boy could hardly be expected to swing opinions in his father's favour through eloquent debate at the age of eight. Edward II himself had not been summoned until he was eighteen, but the king did not expect his son to employ arguments or to say anything at all. He merely wanted him there to be a symbol. Edward of Windsor was not only his father's heir, but a statement of his father's royalty and the family's right to rule. 
the King's message to Parliament was clear. If Parliament recognised this boy's right to attend and be heard, despite being very young and, through no fault of his own, unwise, then it must also recognise the King's right to attend and rule, however unwise the peers thought him. Edward of Windsor's presence in Parliament that October was his father's very powerful demonstration of royal legitimacy. To challenge either of them was to challenge the very institution of monarchy. There were probably several reasons for the timing of the summons. The least important was that Edward was now of an age at which, had he been the son of a nobleman, he would have been sent to serve in another lord's household. As the king's son, the royal household was the only one suitable, for only there could he learn the basic procedures of kingship. Living at his father's court, it may have been considered fitting that, as an earl, he should attend Parliament. A more important reason for the timing was that the king was heading for another confrontation with the barons, and he anticipated very serious trouble indeed. Edward could have had no idea of the cataclysm which was about to erupt within his small but rapidly expanding world. At the beginning of 1320, he had been living in the care of Sir Richard Damery, no doubt meeting Damery's brother Roger, who was now married to one of his, Edward's, cousins. He would have regularly met his justicia's son, Sir Hugh Audley the Younger, who had married another of his cousins. He would have been familiar with Lord Morley, his steward's brother. He would have met and heard a great deal about the Earl of Hereford, who was married to his aunt. Hereford had been reconciled to Edward II after the Gaveston debacle and had remained loyal ever since. The prince would have been aware of his more distant kinsmen too, like Sir Roger Mortimer, Lord Mortimer of Wigmore, who had re-established English rule in Ireland after the Scots' invasion. Edward's treasurer, Hugh of Leominster, coming from a Mortimer region, might well have been one of the several clerks promoted into royal service through connections with that family. Edward's justicia, Sir Hugh Audley the Elder, was Mortimer's brother-in-law. What the eight-year-old Edward would have had difficulty grasping was that now, in the autumn of 1320, these men were all gathering to make war on his father, the king. Edward may or may not have been aware of earlier crises, but he could not have failed to hear about this one. This rebellion was being spearheaded by his father's relations and men who had, until now, been his father's loyal supporters. The cause of the problem was Hugh Dispenser, a man to whom the king had entrusted much of his government, too much, perhaps. Dispenser's ability to tempt the king to give him whatever he wanted was infuriating for men like the Earl of Hereford, Roger Mortimer and Roger Damery. Damery was Dispenser's brother-in-law, but Dispenser was not touched by family loyalty. Their wives might be sisters, but Dispenser saw them only as nieces of the king, and thus ways to land and authority, and in particular, a way to achieve the earldom of Gloucester. The same problems arose with the other brother-in-law and co-heir of the Gloucester inheritance, Hugh Audley the Younger. To Dispenser, the lords Damery and Audley were not brothers-in-law, but rivals. The rivalry did not stop at Dispenser's kin. In 1265, the grandfather of Roger Mortimer had killed Dispenser's grandfather in battle at Evesham, and it was no secret that Dispenser wanted revenge. It was said that he had sworn to destroy Roger Mortimer and his uncle Lord Mortimer of Chirk. When Roger Mortimer and his uncle sought to buy the lordship of Gower, Dispenser took action to secure it for himself. Another marcher lord, John Mowbray, attempted to buy it and consequently fell out with him. Dispenser persuaded the king to confiscate it on the basis that it had been obtained illegally, which it had not, merely being transferred in the way that marcher lands were usually passed on. This united the marcher lords behind Mowbray and against Dispenser. Lord Clifford was another rival, as his mother held several valuable estates which Dispenser coveted. Most of all, Dispenser had an implacable enemy in Earl Thomas of Lancaster, Edward II's cousin, and when Lancaster spoke, nearly all of the north of England listened. This was no local squabble brewing. This was a full-scale civil war between the northern and the marcher lords, supported by many southwestern knights against the loyalists in the south and east. This is the reason why it's important to know who was close to the prince in 1320-21. As the baronial revolt, the Dispenser War, developed, he would not have been shielded from the news, nor would he have seen things only through his father's eyes. His guardian, Richard Damery, was torn between supporting the king on one side and his brother Roger and his former lord, the Earl of Hereford, on the other. Lord Morley initially sided with the rebels too. When war finally broke out, the king imprisoned Sir Richard Damery in Banbury Castle. This explains why the eight-year-old Edward was summoned to Parliament in the autumn of 1320, 
and why he probably remained at court thereafter. There was a real danger he would get caught up in the dispenser war, or at least become subject to the influence of the king's enemies. If young Edward was confused by the rapid development of the situation in the autumn of 1320, he would have been appalled by the eventual outcome. In 1321, after persuading the king to order the banishment of both of the dispensers, the rebel lords were all pardoned for any action they had taken against the favourites. But no sooner was this done than the king raised an army to seek a bloody revenge on those who had forced his hand. In January 1322, Roger Mortimer and his uncle pragmatically surrendered to the king at Shrewsbury, and shortly afterwards the two lords Audley did likewise. But the rest refused to acknowledge any wrongdoing and retreated to the north to stand alongside the Earl of Lancaster. On the 11th of March, the king declared that everyone who opposed him was a traitor. Five days later, at Boroughbridge, the long-expected battle took place, and Sir Andrew Harclay, acting for the king, was victorious. But young Edward would not have heard the news with any joy. Roger Damery was dead, mortally injured in battle. The Earl of Hereford was dead, killed with a spear thrust up from underneath the bridge into his anus. Most shocking of all was his father's action against the Earl of Lancaster. It was utterly inglorious, horrifying even. Edward II ordered his own cousin, a member of the royal family, to be beheaded. He ordered Lord Clifford and Lord Mowbray to be hanged at York. He ordered Sir Henry Willington and Sir Henry Montfort to be hanged at Bristol, Lord Giffard and Sir Roger Elmbridge to be hanged at Gloucester, and so on. All around the country, at the king's orders, lords and knights were hanged singly or in pairs in the towns nearest to their lands. Sir Henry Letaille, who had been Sheriff of Oxfordshire after Richard Damery, and who had then been Edward's constable in the Isle of Wight, was hanged in London. And the king ordered their bodies to remain hanging, never to be cut down, but to remain decaying in chains. It was two years before their desiccated and bird-picked remains were finally removed for Christian burial. We do not know whether Edward was present to see his cousin the Earl of Lancaster beheaded, or whether he saw any of those whom he knew on the gallows but we may be certain that he knew what had happened and that his father was responsible. His own vassals had been ordered to assemble to take part in the conflict, and, two days before the battle, he himself was summoned to attend the Parliament which took place in the wake of the executions. There, his father asserted his new authority. He ordered all legal proceedings against the dispensers to be quashed. He ordered his niece, the wife of Hugh Audley the Younger, to remain a prisoner at Sempringham. Wives of rebels were to be arrested as well as their husbands, all their lands forfeit. The sons of Roger Mortimer and the late Earl of Hereford were locked up in Windsor Castle. The king's opponents were all dead or imprisoned. One pro-Lancastrian author now described the king fearfully as like a lion. His newfound confidence suggested that he himself believed a new era had dawned. With Dispenser to advise him, he felt confident enough to order a new campaign in Scotland to reclaim the kingdom he had lost through years of neglect. Perhaps he had in mind his part of the prophecy of the six kings, that the goat, Edward II, would fight with his relation, the bear, and would lose much of his land, but then he would regain what he had lost and more. He might have interpreted Lancaster as being the bear, and Scotland as the lands he had lost. If so, he was deluding himself. Perhaps he also deluded his son. But even if he did, it is unlikely that the young prince ever forgot that his father began and ruthlessly terminated a controversy over a favourite which resulted in the deaths or imprisonment of many of the men whom he had met and looked up to in his childhood. The Battle of Boroughbridge totally changed the political scene in England. The king and his favourite were dramatically in the ascendant. Edward himself would have noted the political change reflected in the personnel around him. His officers were replaced with pro-dispenser clerks. Nicholas Hugate was replaced by a one-time dispenser servant, William Cousance, a Burgundian. It is likely that Edward's new steward, John Clarun, another Burgundian, attained his post through his connections with Cousance and dispenser. Dispenser's men officiated on behalf of the prince, and probably oversaw his education. Edward did not dislike these new men. Cousins, for instance, remained in royal service for many years and was later directly appointed to important positions by Edward himself. But nonetheless, Dispenser's influence and the widespread resentment it caused cannot have escaped Edward's attention. And this would have been accentuated by one person more than any other. Edward's mother. Queen Isabella loathed Hugh Dispenser, 
After the Scottish campaign of September 1322, which was an utter disaster and almost cost Isabella her life, she blamed Hugh Despenser personally. When, four years later, she got the chance to speak her mind publicly, she accused him of abandoning her and putting her life in peril. She also accused him of often dishonouring her and damaging her noble state of cruelty towards her and of ousting her from her lands and hindering her relationship with her husband. Eleanor Dispenser, Dispenser's wife, had more influence over the king than Isabella herself, even to the point where the queen needed Eleanor's help to get the king's approval for her requests. This suggests that something a little more unusual than mere estrangement was going on, possibly involving an incestuous relationship between Edward II and his niece and an attempt by Dispenser to have sex with Isabella. But whatever the nature of Isabella's hatred for Dispenser, it was sharp and never lessened in intensity. Edward, though young, was having to grow up fast. He was certainly at the Tower on the 17th of February 1323 when he dined with his mother. That day, Isabella was probably in communication with the king's prisoner in the Tower, Roger Mortimer. Isabella spent much of 1323 and 1324 in London, and almost certainly saw a great deal of Edward and her other children, including the youngest, Joan, born in 1321. But these were not happy times for her. As Dispenser's authority grew, hers waned. After the escape of Roger Mortimer from the Tower and his reception with great honour in France in August 1323, the king barely acknowledged her. In September 1324, he removed her children John and Eleanor from her and put them in the care of Eleanor Dispenser. He confiscated Isabella's income. In November, he left her just eight marks per day, five pounds, six shillings and eightpence, for food and drink for herself and all her staff. The French people in her household were arrested, a particularly vindictive move in view of Isabella being French, and she was forbidden to do anything to help them. Even the Launch family, who had been so ostentatiously rewarded by the king for telling him of the birth of his heir, were thrown into prison, their endowments still almost entirely unpaid. If Isabella had any solace in the dark days of late 1324, it was the occasional company of her eldest son, Edward, now twelve years of age. As the launch arrests suggest, Edward's value as a symbol of his father's royal legitimacy was no longer important. The king had defeated those lords who demanded that his government be constitutional. Edward nevertheless remained high in his father's estimations. He was ordered to attend a colloquium at Ripon to discuss the war in Scotland and was summoned to join the army in the summer campaign of 1323. But the main reason we may be certain that Edward remained very much in his father's mind is not regular orders such as these, which were sent to all the earls, but for the very particular role which the king next envisaged his son performing, that of a royal marriage partner, the surety for an international alliance. The first attempt to find Edward a partner had been made secretly in 1318. Various acts of piracy between the men of William, Count of Hainault, and England had encouraged King Edward to look to his kinsmen to establish a marriage bond, and with it, peace. He presumed he could rely on his queen to maintain relations with France, so Hainault and Spain were the obvious directions in which to look to advance English interests. On the 7th of December 1318, he wrote letters authorising Count William to pay heed to the message borne by an embassy of the Bishop of Exeter, the Earl of Hereford, and the lawyer John Walwain. They returned early the following year with a favourable response, so Edward sent them back in 1319 to inquire further. Despite a propitious start, in which the bishop reported that one particular daughter, Margaret, was of fair features, suitable to be married to the prince, the matter did not progress. At the end of March 1321, the king wrote a frustrated letter to Count William, asking what his intentions were. The king went on to say that he wished to have an answer quickly, as he had been solicited by the King of Aragon, amongst others, for the marriage of Edward. Although Count William did obtain a dispensation for the marriage, father acts of piracy disinclined the king to continue with the negotiations, and Edward remained unwed. Edward II had not been bluffing. King James of Aragon had indeed been in contact about the possible match, and there were others interested as well. In 1323, Charles de Valois, uncle to Queen Isabella, proposed that his daughter should marry young Edward. The king preferred the idea of an alliance with Aragon, and in 1324 sent an embassy, including his brother Edmund and the Archbishop of Dublin, with the power to conclude a marriage treaty and dowry. 
nothing had come of it by January 1325, when the king received letters from Castile requesting that he consider a double marriage with that kingdom. Edward would marry Eleanor, daughter of King Alfonso, and Alfonso would marry Edward's sister Eleanor, then aged seven. In February, yet another embassy was sent abroad to discuss the marriage. Edward's household, newly established at the Savoy Palace in London, waited to see which great power would yield him a royal bride. As the rift between the king and queen deepened, Edward tried to remain close to each of his parents. But it was his father who remained able to affect his life most directly, as the gift of the Savoy Palace and the marriage negotiations show. It was also the king who arranged his education. We cannot be certain, but it seems likely that in July 1324 this took the form of the appointment of Richard Berry. Although Berry has often been said to have been Edward's tutor, no record of his appointment has ever been found. One highly respected writer has even gone so far as to say that it is a widespread fiction on the grounds that he was illiterate and, more particularly, between 1316 and 1324, he was in Edward's service at Chester. The former of these two objections is ridiculous, as Berry had been educated at Oxford and was a royal clerk, and thus very far from illiterate. But the latter objection is valid. While there is no doubt that someone taught Edward how to read and write in both French and Latin, it was almost certainly not Berry. Edward was surrounded by royal clerks, and there may have been several who taught him how to read and write. What is more important is the question of who influenced his thinking, and who expanded his intellectual horizons. With regard to this question, it is noticeable that Berry's appointment as Edward's Chamberlain at Chester came to an end just before the 18th of July 1324, when he was described as lately the Chamberlain. After this date, although he remained a royal clerk, he seems to have occupied no identifiable position until February 1326, after which he was regularly appointed by Edward to important positions. The king gave the Savoy Palace to Edward on the 14th of July 1324, it seems this may mark the occasion of Berry leaving his post as Chamberlain of Chester and becoming Edward's tutor in London. This would be a tentative assumption, based only on the legend and a coincidence of dates, if it were not for two other facts. Unusually for a royal clerk, Berry was and is famous for his very extensive library, and because of this may well have attracted the attention of Edward's mother, Queen Isabella, who was herself a great lover of books. The second fact is the very great trust Edward placed in Berry in later years, suggesting a relationship stronger than that of a distant chamberlain and his lord. When Edward was empowered to appoint a constable of Bordeaux in 1325, Berry was the man selected. While it seems sensible to presume that Berry met the prince on at least an occasional basis prior to July 1324, perhaps when delivering sums of money from Chester to Edward's treasurer in the south, it seems equally sensible to presume that he saw him more regularly after that date. Edward clearly had a very high regard for the man, and it seems foolish to ignore the probability that this high regard was due to Berry impressing him with his trustworthiness and apparent learning. The word apparent is used here advisedly. Berry's contemporary, Adam Murraymouth, who knew him, described him as a mediocre man of letters who dressed modestly and died like a pauper, but who, wishing to be considered a great scholar, acquired a huge number of books, so many, that five great carts were not sufficient to carry them. Berry's biographer, William Chambre, claimed he had so many books in his chamber that one could not stand up without treading on them. As Murraymouth suggests, large numbers of books are not in themselves a sign of scholarship. In addition, Berry seems only to have written one original text, the Philobiblon, The Love of Books, and that is a very personal and unusual book indeed. We must therefore ask the question, how scholarly was Berry? The answer to this question lies in the Philobiblon itself. It is an enthusiastic rant about the virtue of books. In books I find the dead as if they were alive. In books I foresee things to come. In books, warlike affairs are set forth. From books come forth the laws of peace. Its subject is not scholarship or a survey of literature, but a justification on the acquisition and possession of books through the knowledge potentially to be gained from them. This is totally in line with what one would expect of a man of great ambition to whom knowledge was important, but whose service did not permit him to spend time in scholarly contemplation. It is likely that Berry's acquisitiveness with regard to books sprang from a thirst for influence, 
and possession of knowledge, albeit in book form, was one means of gaining this influence. Indeed, one suspects that Berry relished the potential of knowledge more than knowledge itself. If Berry became Edward's tutor, or one of his tutors in July 1324, our next question has to be what he might have taught his royal charge. We could answer this in two ways. We could elaborate on the formal education of the time, and we might presume that Berry stuck to the curriculum. Edward would probably have found this tedious, as he was inclined to activity and adventure more than study. The alternative is to look at the Philobiblon to see whether Berry might have supplied Edward with an education in line with his royal background. This second approach is interesting, especially when one considers that Berry was later held in very high esteem by his pupil. For instance, we may picture Berry in his late thirties telling the twelve-year-old prince about Alexander, the conqueror of the earth, and Julius, Caesar, the invader of Rome and of the world, who, the first in war and arts, assumed universal empire under his single rule. War and arts. Edward could not have failed to be struck by Berry's exuberance, for the man was as passionate about his princely responsibilities as he was about books. As he himself put it, the history of the Greeks as well as Romans shows that there were no famous princes among them who were devoid of literature. In a similar passage, which seems to be referring to Berry's own pedagogical position, we read that Philip thanked the gods devoutly for having granted that Alexander should be born in the time of Aristotle, so that educated under his instruction he might be worthy to rule his father's empire. Berry very probably saw himself as an Aristotle to a young Alexander, especially given the conquests which the young man was prophesied to achieve. No wonder, then, that the authors Berry cited included a host of classical writers with Aristotle at their head. Of all the authors he mentioned, Berry commented on very few in detail and criticised none of them in any depth, and we may suspect he impressed the prince by pretending familiarity with great thinkers of the past and knowing a little of each of their achievements. Nevertheless, the impact on young Edward of hearing just the names and a smattering of their backgrounds would have been sufficient to catch his imagination. He would have grown up as familiar with Achilles, Caesar and Alexander as King Arthur and characters in the Bible. Berry might not have been a scholar, but he had enthusiasm, and that is a powerful educational tool. If his conversation was as enthusiastic and wide-ranging as the Philobiblon suggests, he would have greatly encouraged the imagination of the young prince. Berry would not have been the only man trying to affect Edward's thinking. Alongside a professional tutor, there would have been a whole host of clerks and knights trying to instill in Edward a particular view of the world, or a certain understanding of his future responsibilities as a king. Walter Milemeet and William Pagula are two names which are particularly prominent in this respect. Both men wrote advisory works dedicated to Edward, to school him in the art of good kingship. William Pagula's advice, The Mirror of Edward III, which survives in two versions and probably was read to Edward, urged him to pay attention to the well-being of his subjects in a way particularly relevant for the civil war-torn England of the 1320s. Walter Milemeet's On the Nobility, Wisdom and Prudence of Kings survives today in a single, lavishly illustrated manuscript which was almost certainly intended as a presentation copy for Edward himself. If Edward had it read to him, or read it himself, he would have had an outline for ideal kingship. Walter exhorted Edward to know, understand, and read the scriptures and writings in French and Latin, and above all else to have the knowledge to write documents. He included chapters on not revealing the counsels and secret plans of the king, and advised Edward to remove from his presence everyone who is covetous, avaricious, or jealous. Justice was given a prominent place among the virtues of the king, followed by prudence, temperance, courage and magnanimity. Mercy required a whole chapter to itself, as did the conduct of the king in war, which Walter drew almost entirely from the classical writer Vegetius. But above all else, Walter of Milemeet and William Pagula were at pains to stress the importance of peace among the magnates. International war could be a good and honourable thing, but civil war was nothing short of disaster. Edward had probably learned that for himself in 1322, he would never be allowed to forget it. Medieval history is peppered with minor, almost unknown wars, whose unknown dead are not even commemorated by a recollection of the cause in which they fought, let alone a monument. Few today are familiar with the Dispenser War mentioned before, 
Not many more are familiar with the War of Saint-Sardeau, which was the cause of the most important event to occur in the life of the young Edward of Windsor. The War of Saint-Sardeau grew out of a long-standing controversy over the rights of the abbot of Salat in the French diocese of Agen, held by the English king as part of the Duchy of Aquitaine. The Benedictine monastery of Saint-Sardeau, established by the abbot of Salat, was locally understood to be subject to the same laws as Salat itself, subject to French authority, not English. There was a great deal of friction over this matter, however, so that when the monks of Saint-Sardeau sought and received French permission for a fortified town to be established on their land, the local Gascon lords took umbrage. One in particular, Raymond Bernard, burned down the existing buildings on the site and hanged the French royal official from the flagpole which he had just dutifully erected. The French were naturally outraged and blamed the steward of Gascony for not taking action against Raymond Bernard. After a short while, King Charles of France also blamed Edward II for not ordering his steward to inquire into the matter. This raised another problem, for Edward II had still not done homage to Charles for his lands in Gascony. In fact, just before hearing of the outrage, he had offered a series of rather weak excuses as to why he could not do so at the present time. Charles offered a brief postponement, but in the summer of 1324, Edward's negotiators, the Earl of Kent and the Archbishop of Dublin, refused to surrender Raymond Bernard's castle of Montpezat, as they had previously agreed. Charles understandably felt angry, confiscated the duchy, and sent his uncle, Charles de Valois, to recapture the region from the Earl of Kent, whom Edward had ordered to defend it. The English lost several important towns before falling back on La Réole and suing for peace. In January 1325, King Charles offered Edward II a way out of his predicament. He suggested that Queen Isabella be sent to negotiate with him on behalf of the English. Edward, seeing little other option, agreed, and let his wife return to her homeland to negotiate on his behalf. Despite the antagonism she had suffered, she did as well as she could, but the English were in a very weak position. When terms were finalised on the 31st of May 1325, Charles demanded that the King of England should do homage to him for the Duchy of Aquitaine, including Gascony. If the King was not prepared to leave the country, there was no alternative but to invest his eldest son with all the French possessions of the English crown and to send him instead. For the King, this was a huge problem. If he sent his son, he risked losing control of the valuable revenues of Gascony. Worse, he risked losing control of the boy himself. If the heir to the throne were to fall into his mother's hands, she might prevent him from returning to England, holding him hostage until her income was restored, or even betrothing him to a foreign ruler of her own choosing. Suddenly, for the king, the royal symbolism of his son and heir, which had once been such an asset, seemed a liability, for there was no undermining his son's royal status. On the other hand, if King Edward went to France in person, he would have to leave behind Hugh Dispenser, who was exiled from France. This, too, was similar to the circumstances in which he had lost Gaveston, through becoming separated from him. If Dispenser were to lose the king's protection, he stood no chance of survival. There were too many lords in England who sought revenge for the kin they had seen hanged and left to rot after the Battle of Boroughbridge. Edward resolved that he would go himself. It was politically far too dangerous to allow his son to leave his control. Mortimer was still loose, and a small band of discontents was roaming the continent with him, waiting for their opportunity. Although he did initially appoint the twelve-year-old Edward, guardian of the realm and king's lieutenant, during his absence beyond the seas, he changed his mind almost immediately. At the eleventh hour, Hugh Dispenser and his father persuaded him that it would be better if his son should go. In all probability, they managed this by hitting on a solution to his dilemma. The real danger lay in allowing the prince to fall into the hands of his mother, so why not demand her return at the same time? If she could be forced back to England, then the French king could be relied upon to protect his own nephew from falling into Mortimer's hands, and by adopting this strategy, the king did not need to risk Hugh Dispenser being captured and murdered in his absence. On the 2nd of September 1325, Edward, two months short of his 13th birthday, was given the counties of Pontieu and Montreuil. He then made the journey to Dover with his father, where, on the 10th, he received the Duchy of Aquitaine and all the lands the king holds in the realm of France. Edward's treasurer, William Cousins, was confirmed in charge of all his English lands. 
Edward himself was placed in the guardianship of the fearless and uncompromising Bishop of Exeter, Walter Stapledon, and Sir Henry Beaumont. Two days later, Edward sailed away from England, away from his father and Hugh Dispenser, and towards a stranger destiny than had been prophesied for any English king. 2. A Treasonable Youth As Edward made his way to the royal palace at Vincennes, near Paris, to perform homage to King Charles of France, the country folk flocked to see him. Here he was, the son of their Princess Isabella, the grandson of King Philip the Fair, nephew of Charles the Fair, and great-great-grandson of St. Louis, the famous crusading King of France. Comeliness, spirituality, and royalty all ran hand in hand in the French royal family, so each member was a spectacle to be seen, as well as a spiritual marvel. Politically, too, he was important. Isabella had maintained her French links, visiting France on several occasions, and had attracted considerable French sympathy when she had been neglected by her husband in favour of Piers Gaveston. This appearance in France of her first-born son and the heir to the English throne was not to be missed. The splendour of Edward's procession and his pleasure at meeting his beloved mother and the widespread satisfaction that he had performed homage for Gascony was marred by one detail. The Bishop of Exeter's presence was anathema to the Queen. She held him responsible for the confiscation of her estates. All France hated him because he was thought to be the impetus for the recent arrest of Frenchmen in England. When the Bishop compounded his unpopularity by indignantly demanding in front of King Charles and the court that Isabella return to England immediately, she was in a strong position to refuse. In a sudden and shocking revocation of her loyalty, she launched a bitter attack on her husband and Hugh Dispenser and the full blast was directed at the bishop. I feel that marriage is a joining together of man and woman, maintaining the undivided habit of life, and that someone has come between my husband and myself trying to break this bond. I protest that I will not return until this intruder is removed, but discarding my marriage garment shall assume the robes of widowhood and mourning until I am avenged of this Pharisee. The bishop, outraged, looked to King Charles to overrule his sister and to order her to return to her husband. But in words which must have infuriated the bishop, the king declined. The queen has come of her own free will, he declared, and may freely return if she so wishes. But if she prefers to remain in these parts, she is my sister and I refuse to expel her. With those words, the division between Isabella and her husband was made permanent. This heralded a crisis for all concerned, including Edward. His mother had effectively broken from his father and had publicly received the support of the King of France. Bishop Stapledon too was alarmed, and hearing a rumour that certain Englishmen in France, probably Roger Mortimer, were plotting to murder him, he fled from the palace in the guise of a pilgrim, catching up with his retinue later and returning to England. Somewhere, yet to show his face in the whole business, was the real protagonist of the split, Mortimer the man in whom Isabella had placed all her trust. Roger Mortimer and Isabella had much in common. They were both literate, sophisticated, intelligent and aristocratic, and had known each other for upwards of seventeen years. They had both alienated themselves irrevocably from Edward II and the Dispenser regime, which they both hated. Hugh Dispenser had for the last two years been in something of a state of panic about Mortimer's possible return to England at the head of an army and regularly sent scared letters to naval commanders to investigate this trio of German ships or that Hainalter merchant fleet. He knew from his spy network that Mortimer had gone towards Germany and had spent some time at the court of Count William of Hainault, but he never envisaged what would happen next. In December 1325, Mortimer returned to France and Queen Isabella threw herself into his arms and together their attention fastened on young Edward, whose recently confirmed position as Duke of Aquitaine gave them the potential to rebuild their authority. They knew that his hand in marriage would command a large dowry from a suitable bride's father. Regardless of the king's attempts to marry Edward to a continental princess, together they could use Edward to raise an army and wrest England from its untrustworthy king and his despotic favourite. At the end of November, King Edward and Dispenser realised their blunder. In less than ten weeks from saying farewell to his son at Dover, the Mortimer, as Edward II referred to his enemy, had control of his son and was plotting with his queen. And that was not all. Dispenser's spies told him that the revolutionaries had widespread support in England. 
letters from Mortimer had been smuggled into the country. The king gave orders for all imported goods to be searched, but his precaution did nothing to allay the fear. Everyone knew that Mortimer and Isabella would eventually return. What did Edward himself think of all this? We do not know for certain, but it is worth noting that Edward was devoted to his mother, and so he was well-placed to understand her choice of companion, whether or not he trusted him. There is little evidence at this stage that he disapproved of his mother's lover. There is even a snippet of evidence that he may have agreed with the broad thrust of Mortimer and Isabella's plan in his promising to reward Mortimer with Dispenser's rich lordship of Denby if they should be successful. We also need to remember that he had much in common with Mortimer. Both men were intelligent, literate, forceful men of action. Both believed sincerely in the virtues of chivalry and knighthood, as can be seen in the way that Edward, when king, enthusiastically shared Mortimer's love of tournaments and Arthurian display. Both men embraced changing technology in warfare, including gunpowder and cannon, while maintaining and encouraging old-fashioned knightly virtues. In terms of religion, both of them were traditional, not particularly pious, but not sceptical either. Both turned to God at crisis points in their lives, yet were sufficiently worldly to see the political uses of religious display. When it came to raising taxes and spending money, Mortimer's period of ascendancy was almost a blueprint for Edward's own treasury-busting profligacy. And above all else, Mortimer was a successful leader in battle. Therefore, it is likely that Edward saw Mortimer in 1326 as one of the few English lords from whom he could learn something. Back in England, Edward II knew he could never forgive Mortimer and Isabella, but officially he resisted acknowledging his wife was beyond his control until January 1326, even though he did not despair of obtaining his son's return. We can trace the king's growing frustration through his letters. After hearing the news from the Bishop of Exeter, the king wrote to Isabella and King Charles on the 1st of December 1325. To Charles he said that it was a lie that Isabella feared Hugh Dispenser, he claimed he could not believe that she had given this excuse for not returning to England, and he begged Charles to compel her. He terminated his letter with a request to Charles also to deliver up Edward, our beloved eldest son. We greatly wish to see him and to speak with him, and every day we long for his return. The letter he sent to Isabella was the last he ever sent to his wife. He accused her of lying about her hatred of Dispenser and outlined how he had often commanded her to return to him and complained that she had always disobeyed. At the end, he ordered her to return and to bring Edward with her. The following day, the king wrote to his son. His tone in this letter, the first of three attempts he made to recall his son from France, was more considerate. Very dear son, Although you are young and of tender age, may we remind you of what we charged and commanded you at your departure from Dover. You answered then with duly acknowledged goodwill that you would not trespass or disobey any of our commandments in any point for any one. And now that your homage has been received by our dearest brother-in-law, the King of France, your uncle, please take your leave of him and return to us with all speed in company with your mother, if she will come quickly, and if she will not come, then you must come without further delay." for we have a great desire to see you and speak with you. Therefore, do not remain for your mother's sake or for anyone else's under the king's blessing, given at Westminster, 2nd of December. Edward's reply was suitably contrite. He admitted that he remembered that he had promised not to agree to a contract of marriage, nor to suffer it to be done for him and to obey his father. But he could not return, he stated, because his mother would not let him. His protestation would have been backed up in mid-December when the ladies and knights whom the king had sent with Isabella to France returned home. She had dismissed them and removed all those loyal to the king from her service, cutting herself and Prince Edward off from the influence of the English court. In January 1326, the king heard that his son had been betrothed to a daughter of the Count of Hainault. He wrote to all the sheriffs of all the English counties, stating that they should be ready to take arms against the queen, for... The Queen will not come to the King nor permit his son to return, and she is adopting the counsel of the Mortimer, the King's notorious enemy and rebel. The King's only hope now lay in trying to persuade Edward to return to him against his mother's will. On the 18th of March, the King wrote to his son again. His letter, which was no longer than his last, acknowledged that Edward had done well, and expressed his pleasure in hearing that Edward remembered his promise not to marry without his father's consent. 
but there was a note of disbelief in the letter, for the king knew about the marriage contract with Hainault, so he indirectly accused his son of concealing the truth. If Edward had done anything contrary to his promise, then, you cannot avoid the wrath of God, the reproach of men, and our great indignation. You should by no means marry, nor suffer yourself to be married, without our previous consent and advice, for nothing that you could do would cause us greater injury and pain of heart. And since you say that you cannot return to us because of your mother, it causes us great uneasiness of heart that you cannot be allowed by her to do your natural duty. Had Isabella returned to England when ordered to do so, the king added, then she would still be high in the king's affections. But her pretenses for not returning, said the king, were against her duty. Then he added a particularly hurt line. You and all the world have seen that she openly, notoriously, and knowing it to be contrary to her duty and against the welfare of our crown, has attached to herself and retains in her company the Mortimer, our traitor and mortal foe, proved attainted and judged, and she accompanies him in the house and abroad, despite of us, of our crown, and the right ordering of the realm, him the malefactor. And worse than this she has done, if there can be worse, in allowing you to consort with our said enemy, making him your counsellor, and allowing you to associate with him in the sight of all the world, doing so great a villainy and dishonour both to yourself and us, to the prejudice of our crown and the laws and customs of our realm, which you are supremely bound to hold, preserve and maintain. Edward could not